Good morning, church. Welcome. We are starting a new series called Favorites. On Wednesday night, we had the chance to petition our church to submit their favorite verses of Scripture. We'll be preaching through those for the next couple of weeks. What's the point? Why would we preach through favorite sermons and favorite Scripture? Let me read you a couple of verses of a song that I hope will facilitate your understanding as to the purpose of this series. Here we go. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels. Doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles. Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes. Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes. Silver white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. But when the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, huh? I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so bad. So there you go. The purpose of our favorite things in life, and specifically here this morning, our favorite verses, is when life throws us a curveball. When we experience a situation that makes us cry out for God in desperation, our minds should be drawn to our favorite verses. And those favorite verses should make things feel not quite so bad. An interesting verse appeared recurrently through the verses that were submitted. The verse was Psalm 3418. So I want you to turn there into Psalm 3418. And I'm going to read that verse to you. And then we're going to flip over into the book of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is what Psalm 3418 says. And we're going to 1 Samuel 21. Psalm 3418 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This morning, if you're feeling bad, my prayer is that this verse will be an encouragement to you. This particular psalm was written by David after an occasion that certainly made him feel desperate. We get the background of that story in 1 Samuel 21. David is being persecuted by King Saul. Saul understands David will be the next monarch of Israel. David asks Saul's son to do some undercover work for him and figure out if it's true that Saul really is going to try and kill him at some point. Sure enough, Jonathan says, David, if you stay around, my dad, the king, King Saul, is going to come after you and try to kill you. David gets out of there. He's alone, he's by himself, he's isolated, and he wanders into the territory of a king that maybe would like to kill him as much as Saul does. That's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 21.10. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, isn't this David 
the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Ashish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you brought this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And then Ashish, king of Gath, dismisses David. It's interesting to note that sometimes the context a person is in explains their crazy behavior. Sometimes the context you're in, sometimes your environment, sometimes your setting is so desperate, you are compelled to act a little bit crazy. And it's in those moments, at least in the life of David, that afterwards he would recall seeking after God and and realizing that God is close to the brokenhearted. Can I get an amen? amen? And saves those who are crushed in spirit. We're going to break that down this morning and then I'm going to get you guys out of here hopefully encouraged today. First thing is God finds broken hearts. God finds broken hearts. The scriptures tell us that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. The writer of Hebrews says uh, to be content for God himself has said he'll never leave or forsake us. That scripture that that particular writer is borrowing from the book of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 8. So from Deuteronomy to Hebrews we see that God is a God who is there. But there are some times where God doesn't feel like he's that close. And that often involves my sin. James 4, 4 says to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of the Lord. If I'm an enemy of the Lord, I'm going to sense him being distant. And sometimes it's just circumstantial like David. The writer of the 71st Psalm kind of gets at this. 71, 12. Psalm 71, 12 says, do not be far from me, my God, come quickly, God, to help me. The writer of Psalm 13 gives us this idea also of God being a little bit distant during a season of life. Incidentally, Psalm 13 written by David, who would say, How long, Lord, will you forgive me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Friends, there are times and seasons in life that despite God's being ever-present, either your sin or your circumstance gives you the sense that God is distant. And if you've ever been in that situation, I want you to remember Psalm 34, 18. That God comes near to all hearts who are broken. God comes near to hearts that are broken. And not only does God find broken hearts, God favors broken hearts. We're to keep reading here in Psalm 34, 18. The Bible says, the words of David say, that the Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. This takes brokenness to a little bit deeper level and gives us a greater sense of what the scriptures are talking about when they say God is near broken hearts. 
This kind of brokenness, if we were to look in the original language, is not simply the kind of brokenness like if I take a pot and it shatters on the ground. That, that's broken in our vernacular. But this kind of brokenness would be if we took that shattered pot and then we ran over it with some sort of a steamroller. And it was ground down into powder. This is the same kind of brokenness that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, something about you, you have to realize is a little bit in need of a Savior. A little bit impoverished. And then when you start to really seek God, you'll find that you're an inheritor of the kingdom of God. You know who understood this idea really, really well? Is David himself, the same writer of our text this morning. You see, David was a guy a lot like us. He was a guy who experienced sin in his life. He had some serious failures, and I'm talking major. He becomes king. He's on the roof of the palace. He looks over to where ladies would be bathing. He sees a beautiful lady named Bathsheba. He sends his messengers to invite her to the palace. They fornicate. She gets pregnant. The issue with that is she's also a married lady. So he calls for a husband to make matters worse and asks Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come to the palace He finds out he's this great guy and then he puts him on the front lines to be murdered and killed in the battle that the Israelites are fighting. So not only is he fornicated and impregnated another man's wife, he ends up killing this other guy. That's a guy who is really messed up. Like seriously messed up. And in the 51st Psalm, David writes words that are similar to the words he pens in the 34th Psalm. Psalm 51 and verse 7, David says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David wrote the 51st Psalm following his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he experiences that broken, crushing sense of, Of his own sin. He understands that he's messed up. He understands that he's broken. He understands that outside of God he is worthless. He is crushed in spirit. And he brings that spirit to God. And David understands that that kind of brokenness. That kind of crushed into powder. God doesn't despise. He shows favor to it. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, the second letter he wrote to him, chapter 7 and verse 10, talks about this same kind of brokenness, crushing experience of my own sin. He says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's feeling crushed by the weight of my own sinfulness. The Apostle Paul in that particular verse contrasts that with the type of sorrow that the world feels. Which is ultimately the kind of sorrow that's going to bring about my death. Why? Because I don't feel the magnitude and weight of my own sin as much as I'm just mad I got caught. 
Only to find better ways of doing what? Plotting and scheming and covering up in hopes of avoiding being found out in the future. That's not brokenness. That's not feeling crushed in spirit. That's simply being sad that you got caught. I think I thank God that we serve a creator who is capable of fixing broken hearts. Not only does Scripture say that God is near broken hearts and that He shows favor on broken, contrite hearts that are crushed in spirit, He saves them, but He can actually fix your broken heart. God can. If you were to do a word study on Psalm 34.18, you would find that the word to describe brokenness in Psalm 34.18 only occurs one other time in the Scriptures. It's a word only used twice. And the second time it's used is in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness all the prisoners. That word brokenhearted in Isaiah 61, 1 is the exact same word for brokenhearted in Psalm 34, 18. What is Isaiah 61.1 referring to? Or who is that passage of Scripture referring to? This is one of the most beautiful, messianic, prophetic texts in the Old Testament. This Scripture points to the Lord Jesus. Who is it that God's eventually going to send to bind up the brokenhearted? Jesus! Who's God going to send to proclaim freedom for all the captives? Jesus! Who's God going to deliver to us to release all from darkness who were ensnared therein as prisoners? Jesus. And so the desperation that David feels in 1 Samuel 21, when man, he's alone, he's mentally ill. David is feigning mental illness. Everybody looking at him would have thought, this guy is crazy. He was under sentence of death being persecuted without a friend, without a place he could hide. He ends up going from here into a cave. He's homeless. You ever had a mental problem? You ever been homeless? You ever killed somebody? Committed adultery? Fornicated with someone when you weren't married? Have you ever done any of those things? Have any of those things broken your heart? Not just a little bit, but really crushed you in spirit where you felt the weight of your sin? Friend, I'm here to tell you that that's the exact reason why God sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to this earth. So He could bind up your broken heart, if that's you. So He could release you from the darkness that has held you in. So He could deliver you to be free. A complete and total son or daughter of God. And it's in Jesus Christ the Son we find that healing. That's what this psalm is about. If you link this together the way God intends, man, this points us right back to Jesus. And so what is it that points us to Jesus really? It's our brokenness. It's our brokenness that leads us to Jesus. Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor was in a movie called Brewster's Millions. I want to see 
How many of you guys have seen the movie, This is Time for Confession? Confess our faults one to another so that we might be healed. Lots of y'all's hands went up. Lord bless you. All right. Richard Pryor in Brewster's Millions is given the opportunity to inherit $300 million. This movie was published in like the 80s. That would be like $16 trillion today. But the catch is, to inherit the cash, he's got to spend $30 million, the way I understand it, in 30 days. And it's driving him crazy. So he gets this really great idea to purchase these stamps that are like really, really valuable and send them. Let me show you a picture of this stamp. This is called the Inverted Jenny. The stamp recently was sold at auction for $1.25 million. Now this is a stamp that's like three quarters of an inch by a half an inch. That little tiny piece of real estate in the universe is worth $1.25 million. This is the kind of thing like people that buy a new house go up in the attic and like are hoping to find in the attic. Like something really small tucked away that's worth like all this money. Let me tell you why this stamp is valuable. Okay. Hopefully you can see it from where you're sitting. If you're online, hopefully you can see this online. It's called the Inverted Jenny. What makes this stamp valuable is that it's misprinted. The graphic in the center of the stamp is, a, is an airplane that they call Jenny. I, I, don't, I can't remember what exactly type of plane it was. But the guy who first puts the 100 uh, stamp square onto the press had inverted the image of the plane. So he prints off one sheet. They're all inverted. He makes the correction. Every sheet thereafter is printed fine. The thing that makes this stamp of value is its imperfection. There's not hardly any other stamps like it in the world. Actually, as far as this stamp is concerned, there are 99 other stamps that are just like it. But as far as you're concerned, there is nobody else like you on earth when God had unlimited resources and he had unlimited time, he designed you just like you are, flaws and all. And it's your flaws, it's your brokenness, it's your failures, it's your sense of all of that that crushes you to the point of feeling like you're pulverized into powder that should draw you close to God. And say, God, I am broken. I am messed up. I need you. And God is not like us. He doesn't see brokenness and condemn it or criticize it or complain about it. He runs to it. And he takes broken, sinful, nasty people. And through Jesus Christ makes them his sons and daughters. Can I get somebody to shout amen? Are y'all hearing me out there? That's a big deal. Genetically to God, if you were to draw your blood and take your DNA after you're in Jesus Christ, you look genetically identical to someone who would be in God's family. That's something to shout about. And the thing that drives you to God is your brokenness. Somebody under the sound of my voice is broken right now. Somebody feels too messed up for God to reach you. 
Somebody feels like the situation you're in can't get any better. And friend, I'm going to tell you that it is exactly that situation or that broken piece of you that causes God to run towards you and call out to you, surrender to me. Give it up to me because I'm right here beside you. I don't know what the need is in your life. I don't know what the broken thing is in your neck of the woods. I just know it's there. And my hope is this morning that this verse will be an encouragement to you like it was an encouragement to King David before us and many people under the sound of my voice in this auditorium who have said this is their favorite verse. And certainly the reason why is because there is no way we can be out of God's reach. There is no brokenness that God cannot restore. There is no crushed spirit that God cannot rebuild. So whatever the need is in your life this morning, whatever the prayer request might be, I invite you to please stand to your feet and come forward this morning while together we stand and sing.